0: All right, at this time, I would like to go ahead and begin, since I would like to bring this to an end. I have tried to put questions of a particular type together, so we'll give it the best, but I think we received close to 80 or 90 questions. Obviously, we can't do them all, but we'll give it the best shot we can, and hopefully yours will be one of those. first question to Father Tad: Are there any promising stem cell treatments for the relief of Parkinson's symptoms?
1: Uh, okay, the there have been there has been a little bit of there has been a little bit of initial work uh, on Parkinson's. What I usually do when I get questions like this, because this is one of the most common types of questions I get, it's like. Um, I have a friend who has this disease or that disease. Are there any adult stem cell treatments? What I recommend, and I sometimes actually put a slide for this uh, in my talk, is to go to a website called clinicaltrials.gov, G-O-V. If you go to clinicaltrials.gov, there's a little search engine there. Type in the name of the disease that your friend has and look through the current clinical trials. Some of them use adult stem cells and you can get a wealth of information that way. That's a much better resource for you okay. than, you know, some studies that I may have heard about that may not have, you know, come to completion and so on. So that's what I would recommend.
0: Okay, thank you. Another question. What is the role of biotech firms money in the debate of embryonic versus adult stem cells? Do biotech firms prefer embryonic stem cell lines because they are easier to own the
1: patient? Uh, yes. The, the problem here is that when you produce an embryonic stem cell line out of a particular embryo, and you do that successfully, and you get a, a cell line that quote-unquote performs, um, you can get licensing rights over those cells even though they're not being used to cure anybody yet, the fact that you have licensing rights means that if you send it to the guy over at the next university in the next town over, his university has to pay you or pay your university royalties. And you remember I mentioned Dr. Jamie Thompson at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. His university is making literally millions of dollars because of these licensing arrangements from some of the first embryos that he destroyed uh, and holds those rights over those cells. So yes, there is definitely a cash trail here, uh, and if you follow the money, of course, that's likely to reveal uh, a great deal about what's going on.
0: Okay. This next one is for Cardinal Lorenze. It's somewhat lengthy, but I think it may be something that sometimes comes up in discussion. Life begins at conception is an objective truth requiring no infallible doctrine for that statement. Question, what is the chance there could be an infallible doctrine stating infallibly that the soul is infused at the moment of conception? We already have the immaculate conception doctrine stating that Mary was conceived without sin. Wouldn't it follow that this pure state of Mary would be when she had a soul occurring at the moment of conception? if we are conceived with the stain of original sin, would it follow that stain is on the soul?
2: Oh Lord, so complicated.
0: (laughs) (laughs) The faith is very easy till you start asking questions.
2: (laughs) For me it's very complicated and very theoretical. Where's your problem? The Blessed Virgin Mary was conceived without sin. We are all conceived with original sin and we need baptism. Where's the problem?
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right, another
1: question. (laughs) Please, go ahead. I I mean, that's that's a great answer. Maybe I'll just add a few other, I mean, I see what the questioner is getting at here, which is that when you're talking about the case of Mary's preservation from original sin, it would seem to imply the necessity of what we call immediate the The problem here is that the person who's asking the question, and many of us, in the way that we've been brought up, we haven't actually understood a key element of the dogma of the Immaculate Conception. What does it actually mean? When you study it historically and read the original uh, document of promulgation for this dogma, it's very clear that the Immaculate Conception means the Immaculate Ensoulment. In other words, it says nothing about the particular timing of when ensoulment occurred. It only states that when it happened for the Blessed Virgin Mary, it was different than it was for you and me. That God, by a special privilege, preserved her from any and every stain of original sin. So it was uniquely different than our own, but it has nothing to do with timing of when God did that. You know, the debate about when embryos receive their souls I always say to people, it doesn't matter. Now, let me explain why. I mean, I sometimes say it half jesting, in jest uh, that even if an embryo were not to receive his or her soul until he or she graduates from law school, (laughs) (laughs) it still would not be right prior to graduation to kill him or her.
0: That's someone encouraging. (laughs) Another question. It strikes me as problematic to harvest stem cells from miscarriages since, obviously, in both cases, the child cannot consent to having his or her stem cells harvested. This is why grave robbing is a crime, is it not? We require people uh, to donate their body to science before we take it and to sign the back of their driver's license. Any comments? Anyone?
1: I mean, I think the point is well taken that you need consent. I mean, that's what's behind that question is, hey, there needs to be consent. What I think the problem with that question is is the assumption that the consent has to come from the individual themselves. That's not how it works in medical ethics. When you have an underage child and they need a surgery, who gives the consent? Not the child. It's the parents. So what you assume is that when consent is validly given, the best interests of the patient are being respected. That's kind of an under, under, undergirding assumption there. So, when you have a miscarriage, uh, you assume the parents have the best interests of the child in mind, and they could, you know, do like an organ donation situation, give the consent in place of the child. Now, the reason a direct abortion doesn't work for that scenario is the parents have already demonstrated categorically that they do not have the best interests of the child in mind because they just killed their own child. So they can never give consent for the use of any tissues from their son or daughter. That would always be impossible. That, that, under, that tears out the, the basis of what we mean by informed consent. We
0: have approval from a higher authority. Question for Dr. Smith. How does marital relations and the sexual act fit in a marriage in which conception is no longer possible if it is impossible to have children?
3: Well, the the church definitely teaches that the sexual act has more than one purpose. And uh, I have a, a, a fun way of, of uh, presenting some things. I can't do it all today, but with John Paul II, in Love and Responsibility, because it's a philosophical work, he puts more emphasis there in a sense on the procreative purpose of the sexual act. In Theology of the Body, because it's a theological work, and it starts with man being made in the image and likeness of God, and in the Theology of the Body man is made a lover, right? and he's to love, and that the sexual act is meant to be an act of expression of love. right, And so it's got the purpose not only of procreation, but the purpose of affirmation of loving another person. Now, if you haven't done anything to prevent that act from being procreative, in a sense, it still has a deep orientation to that, whether or not it's possible to achieve that orientation. I mean, our eyes, whether or not we can see, still have, by their very nature, the orientation to sight. Right, and so your act still has that that um, telos; it has that end. But the fact that it can't achieve that end, that end has nothing to do with decisions on your part if it's a physical malady, but the the act still has full meaning as an act of of a co- act of complete self-giving that's meant to affirm your commitment and your love uh, to the other person.
0: Okay. Okay. Another one for you. Dr. Smith, does personalism require a theological setting to have any weight?
3: Let's, oh, let's see. When you, there's always hidden philosophers in an audience, you know, like <laughs> like this. There are spies, all right? Um, John Paul II in love and responsibility kind of uh, nods in that direction a bit. Uh, he says the personalistic norm is that every person is meant to love and be loved, right? and I don't. I'm I'm not certain he thinks you can get there completely philosophically, right? He says, obviously, we can take truths from revelation, and they can become a foundation for uh, philosophy. You accept this truth, and then you do a philosophical analysis of it. Uh, he, so I think that it, he talks about it being a matter of justice that we have to love other human beings, because human beings are by their very nature free creatures that are meant to, um, again, develop their own their their own lives, but. Um, I'm not certain that John Paul II is convinced that you can you can absolutely um, defend the personalistic norm apart from revelation, but he's willing to borrow from revelation because he knows it's true, right? And it's amazing our culture borrows from revelation. I mean, there's books that have been written about how many of the the values we have in the modern culture, uh, the universal universal brotherhood of man, that everyone is equal and you must love everyone as yourself, or sometimes even a preferential option for the poor, even notions of fundamental human rights, which are really hard to establish without any reference to a creator, that our, our secular uh, culture borrows all sorts of values from Scripture and uh, doesn't at all acknowledge that that's where they're getting them, uh, whereas John Paul II is very honest in saying, this principle is fundamental to my thought. Um, I find it best expressed in Scripture, <laughs> so just let's take it and run with it
0: next question is for Bishop Morlino. When is it appropriate to sign a do not resuscitate order and when is it not appropriate? This is not a telephone call, by the way.
4: When the person is clearly terminally ill and close to natural death, that would be a moment. Now that's the simplest case. But take the case of someone who is maybe on his or her ninth heart attack. And she's up there in years. And he or she is at the point where they can imagine being paddled back to life. Again, where that is too burdensome, burdensome for them in their situation, given all that they've been through. That would make perfect sense. Uh, my grandmother at 96 signed a do not retus- resuscitate order because she was 96 and her heart was failing. And had they revived her, it wouldn't have been for long. So she was terminally ill and close to death in that sense. And someone who has had multiple cardiac episodes would be, uh, it would be understandable if they were a ripe old age and thought they had had enough resuscitations in their life and they were ready to go and see the Sacred Heart and forget about their own.
0: LAUGHTER Good. Uh, this next one may cause uh, some, some discussion. What is the church's attitude toward snowflake babies? Is it to be encouraged to have young women offer themselves as surrogate mothers to offer the orphaned frozen embryos a womb in which to grow? It's a good question. No, that's fine.
3: Um, you, and Lorna, you want to weigh in on this? Uh, Father Tad and, I, Father Tad and I, I, I believe, unless we've changed, which sometimes we do between the times we've seen each other, um, dis- disagree on this issue. Uh, it's called large. well, we probably don't disagree on what the church teaches. I don't know attitude is the right word there. But at any rate, the, the church uh, put out a, a teaching. Was it 2008 Dignitas Personae? It 9 September, 8th. all right, not so good on the years, but not so long ago, uh, the church put out uh, a document, Dignitas Personae, in which for the first time it treated this issue. Uh, I believe there it calls it uh, embryo rescue, or does it call it adoption? adoption? Embryo adoption. I the term I get again, there's many different ways it could be described, it could be described as embryo adoption, embryo rescue. Uh, in that document, it seems to me the church. Uh, expresses some negativity, uh, fairly strong negativity uh, towards the action of embryo adoption. A woman who um, is not related or or maybe even is related to the embryo that's been created through in vitro fertilization and she decides to gestate that child, right? It's not her own embryo, it's another woman's embryo. And so there's, but it seems to me at the same time that the strong negativity is expressed in this document, there is a degree of uncertainty in the document and it, it allows uh, theologians to continue to discuss and, and um, reason about this this issue. For my part, um, in principle, I think it may be a good thing. Uh, much like a, any kind of adoption. Um, women, uh, couples adopt babies. Sometimes that involves a woman nursing uh, a child. So she's offering her her body uh, to this child. I think sometimes if it were taken outside of the context of in vitro fertilization, we might not be so opposed to it because it seems so closely allied and complicit with the in vitro industry. But the John Finnis, who I often disagree with on many things, but on this one I I agree, he wrote an article in National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly and and, um, articulated a position that I hold as well, that if a woman, say a woman, had cancer and uh, she couldn't continue the pregnancy because of the cancer. At least she'd have to have a treatment that would be a threatening uh, to the to the child. That if the child could be gestated by, say, her sister, right, and then even replaced if that were possible for timeline, or when the baby's born, the mother, biological mother, would uh, raise the child. It's her child. It's just been gestated by her sister. If it, if it had come up outside of the in vitro situation, I think we would have an intuitively stronger sense of, of a, the possible goodness of this act. I am concerned, though, uh, very much about um, the consequences. I, I just I just think it will be a nightmare. I think there will be uh, people who will be buying babies. I think there will be women who will be renting themselves out as surrogates. I, I just, I'm not at all certain there's going to be any kind of way to control this uh, without... And I think, to some extent, organ transplantation has become that kind of a nightmare. Uh, many of us know people who have had organ transplants, but the books that are written about the process uh, are are scary. Uh, the pressure that's put on people to uh, donate the amount of uh, trafficking that's done of people purchasing uh, organs from third world individuals, and we haven 't done a very good job regulating. Uh, organ transplants. I doubt that we can do a good job regulating embryo adoption. So while I think in principle it might be a good thing, I'm not certain that in practice it would. My only comment is I just remember Monsignor Smith saying once this is one of those cases where so many bad things have been done already that it's kind of hard to resurrect or to reform you know the situation.
1: Yeah, I, um, I, 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 f- I would say that my approach here would be, would be very different from Janet's. I feel it's actually a, an issue of principle, uh, that, it, that, it, that it's, the wrongness here can be seen in, in, in principle terms. Uh, I sometimes tell a little story, a true story, about a, a friend of mine who um, lives on Cape Cod. I was assigned as a priest there. He's a good Catholic, um, has, I think, five kids of his own, and we got onto this topic. He's not a bioethicist. He's a geochemist. And, um, and he said, well, you know, what does the church think about embryo adoption? And I, I sort of threw it back in his court. I said to him, well, how would you feel if Heidi was implanted with someone else's embryo, his wife? And he paused, and he said, well, she should get pregnant only through me. Hmm. And I thought... Very interesting. He's touched a deep nerve here. In other words, you know, when we look at the question of embryo adoption, people will say, well, we can completely disconnect it from in vitro fertilization. It becomes simply a rescue operation. But the problem is, what are the means that you have to do to carry out this rescue? And I think the means are means which are disordered. They violate the covenant of marriage. They violate the exclusivity that's written right into it. A woman's womb and her uterus, I'm convinced, are not simply her own to be handed over in this unilateral fashion. And even if there's agreement between husband and wife about doing this, I think both fatherhood and motherhood are violated by such a decision here. Um, because what happens when you do this? Normally, how is a father connected to his progeny? Through the marital act, that's the one link he has, and that's severed here. Uh, and this is asymmetric. I mean, and, and notice motherhood. I think is violated as well in the same sense that the mother becomes she becomes a mother independent of her spouse. So even if there's permission here, I don't think it works because there's a sense in which our reproductive powers, as those things which are oriented to handing on life to the next generation, don't just belong to us. They don't just belong to husband and wife. They belong to husband, wife, and God in this kind of tripartite way, mysterious way. So I'm convinced that embryo adoption always involves a kind of step where a woman's reproductive powers end up getting pirated or or redirected in a fashion outside the proper context and that we just can't go there. As tragic as these half a million frozen human beings are, we can't go there. We have backed ourselves into a corner. And I always remind people, look, there's some actions that we choose to do that have permanent repercussions. How many people do you know who would like to reverse an abortion? So many. I'm convinced in vitro fertilization has the same effect. We do certain things that have permanent damage, and we can't just make it all nice and clean with a Band-Aid like this. Now, just one last reflection on this Mm -hmm. to kind of round it out, which is that if this was permitted, and Janet alluded to this, what would actually happen in the real world? We live in the wild west of infertility. Anything goes, there's no regulation whatsoever. It's the almighty dollar that governs the entire industry. So if that's true, and you suddenly encourage embryo adoption, well then the companies who do IVF are gonna say to themselves, oh goody, we don't even have to watch out how many embryos we make. We can make as many as we want because we'll have a stockpile here. We need to keep a stockpile because some customers are going to want embryos. And in this fashion, you're going to have a two-tiered system. Those who make babies immediately and implant them and others who get them from the stockpile of frozen embryos. You have to replenish the stockpile. So this becomes a self-defeating proposal, I think, practically speaking as well. And uh, we, we should never go down that path. I'm also convinced, you know, that the church... And and, and the indications that were mentioned in Dignitas Personae are pushing us in that direction. I hope we will have something more definitive in the future that will say this is not licit, that Catholics could never do this, that it would be always disordered.
0: So if I... So just to bring some, some finalities, so it would be clear then that this is a real Gordian knot, that with these embryos that are frozen, there is, from this, no moral solution
1: to that dilemma. I mean, exactly. I, think we,
0: I think that needs to be said. It's a horrible situation.
1: Yeah, no moral resolution. There's even language like that in the original, donum vitae, mm-hmm. although that's out of context because embryo adoption was not being addressed in that section. But it speaks about how the embryos are... are do you remember the exact language, Jan? Or something about, yeah, it's close to what you said, that the embryos are in an absurd fate.
3: John Paul II said something like that in a talk, uh, that there was no moral solution. The
1: only
0: solution is to stop it, yeah. stop the practice. Yeah. Yeah.
3: And I'm, but again, I don't think that's decisive yet yeah. for what the Church teaches. The, just a little other anecdote is that, um, in, I think it was 1996, when in England... They had a law that if the embryos have been frozen for like five or six years, they have to be thawed and just thrown out. And there was a, a small village in Italy of 200 women, two of them nuns, who came forward and said, give us those embryos, right? We'll gestate those embryos. They shouldn't be thawed because obviously they'll die. And, and I think that's a natural impulse as well, is that I have a uterus, give me that baby. Um, I have arms, give me that baby. I have breasts, give me that baby. And I don't think it violates the, the sexual act at all. It doesn't involve a sexual act. It seems to me the, repro- the act of reproduction has taken place. It has taken place. So you're not engaging in sex with another man any more than by breastfeeding another. If a man looked at his a wife breastfeeding another man's child and said, you're violating my w- wife's body, I think he would be wrong, right? He might do that, be wrong if he said that. And I think that the, the uterus is technically, I suppose, a reproductive organ, but actually it's a gestational organ. The, the breast is a nurturing organ. They all take part in an extended reproductive process, but I don't think you violated the marital relationship. Again, I could be wrong. But my, my view is that, and I'm not certain I like it at all as far as a solution to in vitro fertilization, but um, in principle, I don't think it violates the sexual relationship between husband and wife. I don't, I don't, I don't see that, but I, I could be wrong. Okay.
0: Sounds like a great discussion. <laughs> now, 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 now. We have a question now for uh, His Eminence Cardinal Lorenzi. What specifically is meant by... Man is created
2: in the image of God. It means God created man with intelligence and will. So that human being is a person therefore with freedom, capacity to love, to choose, to relate. Which cannot be said about beasts and birds. Therefore, only God, angels, and human beings share intelligence, will, and therefore freedom. And the consequences then of human use of freedom. So we can love God or refuse to love Him. And nobody is be, will be forced to come to heaven. And those who go to hell, through their fault, through their fault, through their most grievous fault. Okay.
0: All right, thank you.
2: Another question Ter- for- Terrible use, abuse
0: of freedom. Yes. Another question for Dr. Smith. Do you find that many people still need to be convinced that NFP is not contraception? Are you surprised by this? Why do you think this is still the case, if it is?
3: It it surely is the case. Um, Whenever I give my talk, contraception, why not? It's one of the first two questions I get um, about why, if contraception is wrong, is natural family planning all right? I think it will be a perennial question. I, uh, I think it will never be settled, uh, because there's always new people coming to the scene, and new people thinking about things, and people get things right and wrong, whatever. So uh, I don't know if you want me to answer that, but why it's different, but it certainly is still a question. Um, I think it will always be a question, even though I think there's good answers to the question. Okay. I've got a talk about that. I've got an article about it, easy enough to find. Um, I think it's why... The difference between natural family planning and contraception might be one of my talks, something titled like that. And I have an article, The Moral Use of Natural Family Planning on my webpage. And there's other people have also written very good articles on this, so I think it can be found. Okay,
0: thank you. This question, I think, was written by someone who went to a Jesuit university. (laughs) No, you cannot do that. God brings good out of evil. Just kidding, just kidding. Bad joke, bad joke, bad joke. Situation, two children in utero are conjoined from the chest to the pelvis, each has her own limbs and reproductive organs. They share a liver and intestinal tract. They they have one heart residing in the chest, one of the children. The children will be delivered by cesarean section at 37 weeks doctors predict that it is almost certain that both children will die either in utero or within minutes after delivery. There is a distant possibility that the stronger of the two children might be able to be saved if radical surgery is performed, but it will result in the certain death of the weaker child. What, what are the moral options available to parents in this case? <laughs>
3: There there was a case very like this um, maybe 10 years ago, Jody and Mary I think were their names. Um, It was a case that came up in England I think the parents were from some Indonesian island or so, but Malta. Um, And unfortunately the terminology it seems to me of the court was very bad because they did I think quite explicitly say it was, I forget which one was the stronger twin, do you remember? We don't, All right. well let's call Mary the stronger twin. Um, that the courts were saying it was okay to kill Jody in order to save the life of Mary. And the Catholic Church would never say that. It said you cannot kill one human, directly kill one human being to save another. But there were lots of uh, articles written about this, and uh, I wrote one, and actually changed Bill May's mind on this, who at once thought it was wrong, especially it is wrong if you're killing one. But if the organs can be discerned to belong to one or the other... And in this instance, with the Jody Mary instance, it could be determined that the, the, I think it was an artery or something that was the crucial (laughs) uh, problem here, that it belonged to Mary and not to Jody, And my argument was that it was permissible to restore to Jody what was rightfully hers, even if it should result in, or the other way around, Mary's the stronger twin. It was right to return to Mary what was rightfully hers, even if the other twin should die. And I thought the principle of double effect um, permitted that, that there was, you weren't in any way directly killing the weaker twin. You were restoring to the stronger twin what was rightfully hers, and the proportionate death of the weaker twin, who was g- truly going to die anyway, both of them were going to die anyway, um, was proportionate to the good that was achieved, which was the life of, of the stronger twin. But again, I would I would say the church doesn't. The church certainly says you cannot kill anyone to any innocent, directly kill any innocent human being in order to save another human being. So the the court case had it uh, uh, allowed what I think was permissible, but allowed it for the wrong in the wrong terminology is what I'd say.
1: Yeah, and also in that case, the um, parents were opposed to the recommendations. And it seemed that there was a, a significant concern purely on that level that the parents said, "You know, our kids are were born this way. Let nature take its course." And you know, if the parents wanted that, that probably should have been respected, uh, given the ambiguity of the case uh, in terms of the moral principles that are required to to sort it out. The court shouldn't have stepped in and kind of you know taken taken that right of the parents to give the proper consent. Thank you. We have time for one
0: final question. Recently a priest spoke of why the current procedure for heart transplantation is not in accord with the church because the heart must be taken from a living person. How do you judge what forms of organ donation are in accord with the church? What forms of organ donation is forbidden considering current procedures? We send it to the answer man.
1: (laughs) Um, The issue of heart transplants uh, does not raise fundamental moral difficulties if a valid uh, determination of death has occurred using neurological criteria. And What that means is that uh, you have to do a very extensive battery of tests and determine that the individual's brain is completely dead. Uh, that they have you know, no, um, no functional integrity there at all. That, 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 and once that has been done, you, this is another indicator that is used by the medical field to indicate and to determine that death has happened. I mean, you have certain obvious kinds of manifestations of death, rigor mortis being one, uh, or the cessation of the beating of the heart and the breathing of the lungs. That's used as another to indicate that somebody has died. And brain death is a third parallel uh, that is often used. So as long as that has occurred, remember when a person is brain dead, they uh, have no breathing activity or reflexes whatsoever. So they are always, absolutely always on a ventilator uh, and their corpse is being perfused for a short period of time. And even with that perfusion, if other measures aren't taken, they will kind of come apart at the seams, uh, and you won't be able to even harvest you know, other organs after some time has passed. So in that case, the heart will still beat for a while, uh, and you can extract that heart and do a transplant. But indeed, they must be dead by neurological criteria. Would you like? Go ahead.
3: It, it is a fascinating thing when bioethicists who share uh, all the principles in the world disagree on the, um, on the application of those. Uh, the Holy Father approved several times using neurological criteria to determine uh, that a person is genuinely dead. That when they're brain dead, it's not just that their brain is dead, but as Father Tad said, it's now a corpse. It looks like a living human being. It's blood is flowing through its, its, its system but it's really dead. Um, Oddly though, these dead individuals, these perfused corpses have gestated babies, have uh, gone through puberty, all sorts of things have happened that you would take to be signs of a living entity rather than a a, a corpse. Um, Traditionally, corpses have not been able to do those things. And now this is a different kind of corpse. If if it is a corpse, it's a perfused um, corpse. So there's a large body, growing body, I would say, of Catholic bioethicists and theologians who think that neurological criteria don't really establish that someone is dead, that the soul is still there. And it can't manifest itself in acts of consciousness, etc. But since signs of life are there, uh, cells are growing, puberty, can ha- a boy can go, a child can go through puberty, a woman can gestate a child, Those are signs of life, that there still is life there. And if there's life, it's human life. And if it's human life, they're living. Now, I think any Catholic who wants to donate uh, organs is perfectly uh, justified in doing so because the church has given approval to neurological criteria as being criteria for death. But I believe it's still that the Vatican itself has been holding with some regularity uh, conferences on whether neurological criteria really are Sufficient to establish that the soul has departed from the body and if the Vatican itself is holding conferences on this topic It seems to me it too is still an open question
1: I I wouldn't wouldn't no. I wouldn't agree with that. I I think that the uh, the number of statements that have come from the church in support of this would basically put this into the category of being a settled question uh, so I, I would not agree with, uh, with Dr. with Janet on Dr. Smith on that, but um, I, I would also just throw kind of a, a little bit of uh, of a wrench of caution into some of the line of thinking, which would be when you have, for example, the possibility of a woman gestating a baby when she's brain dead. This is going to always require truly heroic kinds of steps, ventilators pressers, uh, hormonal, you know, interventions, all kinds, of, and in many cases you try to bring that pregnancy just far enough along to viability and you can't do it. The corpse comes apart, the pregnancy ends. So the point is, you know, we are not talking about an organized system here. We are in fact talking about a corpse which has various subsystems that still manifest some degree of locally integrated functioning. But there is no globalized sense in which we can say this is a human organism. That's why, you know, there's been no ambiguity in this in the medical field and the church always defers to the medical profession to identify what the criteria are via which you can reliably ascertain that death has occurred. Uh, So, you know, I I would see it uh, in in a different way uh, here. Well, I think there will please, be, just, yeah, please, go ahead. Ask eminence. <laughs> go ahead.
2: You can see the complexity of the questions being examined today and the advantage we have of these experts in medical and theological science. I want, however, to say in general that we have to get one point very clear. <clears throat> These questions on bioethics are questions of God's law, not Catholic Church law. Catholic Church law would be, do not eat meat on Friday. (laughs) There, the Pope can change it, or the bishop, or even your confessor. But these are questions on commandment number five, thou shalt not kill or even number six, or number 10, In the, they are not church law. However, the Catholic Church has the duty to interpret God's law, to explain it so that people can see securely, clearly what to do or not to do. Sometimes the situation is clear enough, and the Catholic teaching authority of the church as vested in the bishops and the pope, can speak infallibly. But they are very rare. Like abortion. That one is clear. A clear statement in Evangelium Vitae, um, infallible. Or euthanasia. Do not kill an innocent person. Not church law. Divine law but authoritatively interpreted by the church. But in many cases heard this evening, as you can see, is much more complex. It's not so clear. The medical people and other scientists can disagree. Why not? Because it's so complex. And even theologians can disagree. Every area of theology is not dogmatic. And many theological uh, pronouncements on such matters as touched this evening will depend first on material supplied by science, medicine, and all the allied sciences. Therefore, no Catholic should ask for an infallible dogma on every one of these intricate points. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because so, some, some Catholics want half a dozen dogmas from the Vatican every morning.
1: <laughs>
2: it's not possible. <laughs> For example, even the exact moment of death, doctors can disagree. Theologians can disagree. But the common Christian knows when their soul leaves their body, that person is dead. <laughs> That's fine. You can put it there. You want to...
0: That's fine. That's fine. That's fine. That's fine. No, it's fine. Well, I think after that we can say Roma lacuta est. <laughs> to bring us back to a, a fundamental principle, not a, in a to conclude here, uh, all of our speakers have made reference today to Dignitas Personae, the great document, which you can get and download off the website. I would like to take us back to the core principle that is enunciated in the conclusion of that document, and I share this with you as we conclude today. Sacred Congregation writes, in virtue of the Church's doctrinal and pastoral mission, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith has felt obliged to reiterate both the dignity and the fundamental and inalienable rights of every human being, including those in the initial stages of their existence, and to state explicitly the need for protection and respect which this dignity requires of everyone. The fulfillment of this duty implies courageous opposition to all those practices which result in grave and unjust discrimination against unborn human beings who have the dignity of a person created like others in the image of God. Behind every no in the difficult task of discerning between good and evil, there shines a great yes to the recognition of the dignity and inalienable value of every single and unique human being called into existence. We need to thank the Holy See for offering us this document. I would like to thank several people today, Tom Keaston and all of the student volunteers who helped set up and organize this conference, to Chef Dennis and his kitchen staff, to Father Planty and all of his servers. Father, we will have an ending prayer, so if you'd like to come up, we could use your eloquence once again. But in a special way, I would really like to thank all of these speakers who've come from very far distances to contribute to our understanding. I believe that our Lord and his church were served very well and our nation served by the discussion we had today. Expression of gratitude to all of the people on our panel today.